Good morning, church. Good to be with you guys. Welcome to those who are joining online, the many families that are sick. It's cold season, and we're feeling it in our church. Let's, this week, check in on someone that you know is sick, a family member, and just let them know we're praying for them, and we're here for them. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Daniel. I have the opportunity to provide uh, oversight, pastoral oversight and leadership in teaching and preaching and in counseling. This year, we began a, a formal kind of counseling ministry to the community uh, because counseling has had a huge part in my life, my spiritual journey, and uh, I'm, I'm passionate about counseling. I love counseling. I'm currently working towards an MDiv in, with the concentration of biblical counseling, Lord willing. I'm praying about getting a PhD in biblical counseling. Just love it. I love what I'm learning. I want to help others with what I'm learning. Uh, so to help others grow, we're, you know, we're committed to the mental and emotional and spiritual health of those in our community. Uh, if you would like counseling, you're in the church, you're outside of the church, uh, you can go to our website at themountainchurch.org slash counseling and, and talk with someone who can listen and hear your story and help. We believe that there's hope and help. Amen? When Jesus was asked the question, teacher, what is the most important commandment? Jesus responded with this in Matthew 22. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is our call as Christians. Love God and love others. Amen? Amen. So if this is the calling of the church, then my aim, my desire as I preach and as I teach each week, and for us teaching our children and for us encouraging each other throughout the week, our call is not simply to tell you to love God better, as if you have the strength in yourself to muster it up. God's love, the love of Christ I pray as we preach, as we worship, as we encourage one another is something that is responsive. In other words, it's because God loves us. It's because we're being captivated by his love. It's because we're seeing God's love for us in the gospel that we're motivated, we're encouraged to love God and love those around us. So that's my hope as I preach each week that, that you would be stirred, your affections would be stirred, not just as I'm appealing to you, hey, Quit it out. You're selfish. You're not loving God. You're not loving your wife. You're not loving your kids. Do better. Love more. And that's the, right? My hope is that, that I would help through the scriptures. We would see the glory of God, the love of God in Christ, and that from seeing his love, our hearts would be captured to respond in love towards him and love towards others. You guys with me? I want to say that every week, through different ways, I think it's so important that we don't lose sight of this, growing in love for God and growing in love for others. That's my hope. So if you haven't already, let me invite you to take a hold of your Bible and open to the passage our friend Rick just read, 2 Samuel chapter 20. Samuel is one of the historical books, a grouping of books that comes after the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And it comes after Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. It's right before Kings and Chronicles. And well, if you can believe it, we're going to be in Samuel just four more weeks. We're coming to the end of the story. We've been in Samuel a while, <laughs> and we're coming to the end. And as we finish Samuel, we're going to have a couple of weeks to reflect in the Advent season, a couple of Sundays, and then in the new year, 
I'm excited. We're going to start a, a new study through the book of Acts. And we're going to be in Acts most of next year. So if, if you'd like to you know, get some devotional books or commentaries to read along with that as we study through, there's a couple of commentaries that I, that I enjoy recommending that are not super technical or academic. They're devotional. They're pastoral. And one of them is, is the For You series. So we've recommended like Galatians for you, First Peter for you, this, this For You series. There's an there's a Acts for you. And I'd recommend it's up on the screen. Uh, and we also have, I've come across this, this Message of series. Uh, so there's a, a book on there called The Message of Acts, written by a guy named John Stott that I would, I'd set before you and recommend if you enjoy kind of studying alongside us as we're going through Acts. And finally, is just a resource that I, I, people have, we've given them out in the past uh, through different sermon series. It's, it's called the ESV Scripture Journal. And what the, it is, it's, it's the text of the, of the scripture on one side, and then the other side is just blank notes. So as you're listening to sermons or as you're studying along, you can, you can take notes on the side, and it's not that the thin Bible paper that you, know, you don't want to touch it, or highlights or underline. It's, you can, it's just real paper, thick paper that you can, you can mark up. So does that sound good? That's where we're going. All right. Let's consider our text, 2 Samuel chapter 20. Right? As a nation that was formed in rebellion to tyranny. They had no taxation without representation. It was a rebellion. I think as a nation, we enjoy rebellions. We celebrate them, actually. To be rebellious is kind of celebrated in our culture. And in Seattle, I very much think that's an underlying current in our society, the greater Seattle area. Rebellion, we want to be different. In the greater Seattle area, it seems like to be a Christian is to be rebellious, right? Because <laughs> so, so much of our worldview and convictions are different. But in many of our stories that are celebrated in our society, rebellions are celebrated. I'm thinking about some of my favorite movie series, Star Wars. Now, you can see sometimes that people celebrate the rebellion in just the decals that you see on someone's car. Right? I've never seen the little car, the little decal of the galactic empire on someone's car. You see the rebellion on their car. The, rebellion, the rebels are presented as the noble, the courageous, the worthy ones. How many were crushed when the evil galactic empire fell and the emperor died? No, that's not what happened. We celebrated. Then there was, there was episode six, there was celebrations all throughout as the evil fell and the rebel alliance stood strong. And, our, you know, and there's been a series of runoffs of this, right? Rogue One and... Now there's a new series kind of displaying the backstory of that called Andor, which I have only seen a couple episodes. Um, sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. Other stories that are highlighted, celebrated in our society are the Hunger Games. And whether you read the books or you watch the movies, the one who is celebrated is not President Snow, right? It's Katniss. It's celebrating the downfall of this evil rebellion. Bring, bringing down of the tyranny. But the Bible presents rebellion in a very different way. <laughs> and the Bible presents the biblical narrative is not the noble, courageous rebels that are against the tyranny of the evil empire. The Bible is a story of evil rebels seeking to bring down the goodness and the beauty of God. Rebelling against the good and kind and loving king and this is what our story today is about. This, he's described as a worthless man, good for nothing, <laughs> evil. 
Sheba and his rebellion against King David, rebelling against the Lord's anointed, the chosen king of Israel. And we're seeing the decline of David's kingdom in Israel as this rebellion comes just at the tail of a previous rebellion of his own son, Absalom, who sought to undercut his son, kicked him out of the throne, tried to lead the, the nation in a civil war, and Absalom was taken care of, and his, his rebellion was squashed. But it's just right after that, we have this other rebellion, Sheba. And in this story, we're going to see violence and deception and murder. And this kind of ends, this, this story ends kind of the main body of Samuel. The, the next four chapters, in chapters 21 through 24, they form an, an epilogue. And if you're into understanding narrative and literary devices, it forms a chiasm. You guys know a chiasm? Where there's points on either side and they work into the middle, which is the main, the main kind of focus of the narrative that the center of the chiasm is two Psalms of David. And these last four chapters are not placed in chronological order. They're kind of summarizing David's reign and it's preparing us for the king's and, and Solomon's reign. But this kind of ends the body of the letter. And that's seemingly why at the very end of the chapter, Saul, or David's officials are listed out again. It kind of parallels at the beginning of David's reign. So in 2 Samuel 8, David has, he's been anointed as king over Israel. The ark has returned to Jerusalem. Celebration. God has made a promise to him in 2 Samuel 7 that from his lineage would come a, a son, an offspring that would sit on an eternal throne. No other promise like this of an eternal kingdom. It's to David. It's this messiah. Mess, messiah. That's not the right word. Messianic. Thank you guys. Yes. This, the messiah is going to come from the line of David to establish an eternal kingdom. And it's right after this in 2 Samuel 8, we're given a parallel list similar to the end of 2 Samuel 20, but they, they differ in some ways that I think the narrator, the narrator, the author of Samuel is giving this parallel to show us how things have changed in the kingdom. So 2 Samuel 8, 15 through 18, says David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Isn't that what we're looking for? A kingdom of justice and equity. Joab, was over the army. Jehoshaphat was recorder. Zadok, Abiathar were priests. Zariah was secretary. Benaiah was over the Carathites and Perathites, and David's sons were priests. That's, that's the one list. Now look at the, how the list differs in 2 Samuel 20. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. Benaiah, command over the Perathites and Carathites. Adoram was in charge of forced labor. That's new. Jehoshaphat, he's the same guy. So the recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar are priests, and Ira the Jerethite was also David's priest. Look at that there. The mention of David reigning and ruling is gone over all Israel. The mention of justice and equity is gone, and none of David's sons there are listed. And this shows us the difference of how David started with how he ended. The kingdom is not, he's not reigning over all Israel the way he was. There's splintering and shattering and division in the kingdom. Justice and equity have not been administered. And Joab, <laughs> the man who David didn't want as commander because he killed his son and he appointed someone else, he has weaseled his way back. He's still commander, even though against the wishes of David. And he's going to do this through deception and violence like we see in the story today. One rebellion coming after another. So we're seeing that kind of downward trajectory of David's reign just in these two lists. So let's look at the body, the main, the main story, 2 Samuel 20, verse 1. 
There happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. He blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. You can just imagine him. Just, he's blowing the trumpet. He's getting everyone's attention. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. This is David's dad. Every man to his own tent. This is a saying, not saying that they lived in tents, which is a, it's a phrase that says, let's go home. So we have no share in David. We have no interest in David. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So the same thing is happening. All the tribes of Israel going away, and it's just Judah following David. You see the fragile nature of the kingdom. This worthless guy is getting up, and he's saying, we have no portion in this guy. We have no share in his inheritance. And everyone goes after Sheba. Down with the dynasty of David. All right, let's go back to our homes. So David goes back to Jerusalem. He's, he provides for the 10 concubines that Absalom had violated on the roof in the sight of all Israel. He's going to provide for them. And then he tells to Amasa, the newly appointed commander of the army, replacing Joab. He says, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the time that had been appointed to him. Now we're not told why. He was not able to muster the troops. Were the troops still more loyal to Joab? Was Amasa not really on board with David? We don't, we're not told. But at this point, David doesn't reinstate Joab, the former commander. He reinstates Joab's brother, a guy named Abishai. And he tells Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went after him, so Abishai is taking the lead, Joab's men and the mighty men, and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba. So Amasa's not in the picture anymore. He hasn't been able to rally the troops. David has appointed Abishai, and with Abishai goes Joab, his brother. And it leads to this interaction between Joab and Amasa. When they're at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came and met them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment and over it was a belt with the sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh and as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? Now Joab is cousin to Amasa. Is it well with you, my brother? They're family. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. That might sound a little strange to us. <laughs> the only person I want taking me by the beard is my wife, right? <laughs> But this is a, a, a normal way of describing, this was kind of a normal gesture of uh, a kiss, a greeting in, in their culture. And we're told that, you know, as he goes forward, a sword falls out, and this might have like been a deceptive move. He's putting a mace at ease. It could have fallen out, and he goes down to pick it up, and then, you know, he hides it from a mesa and stabs him as he's going in for the kiss. It could be that this fell out, and he had another concealed weapon that he, right, we're not... We're not told exactly the exact details of how this went down, but it catches Amasa off guard. Goes in through the kiss, and all of a sudden he's stabbed. He doesn't see the sword in Joab's hand, and he kills, Joab kills Amasa. And as I was, I was reading through the story, and Stephanie and I were talking through the story, Stephanie, we had some questions. Like, why does Joab do this? I mean, uh, why does he kill Amasa like this? This cold-blooded murder, and he just sits there wallowing in the road. We're not told Joab's intention. We're not told his motivation in the story. But we're told elsewhere in God's word, why do people do what they do? 
We're told in the word of God, every disorder and every vile practice where it originates from, jealousy and selfish ambition. Jesus' half-brother James, had some of the, he has some of the most clear teaching on why we do what we do. Why do we fight? Why do we quarrel? James 3.16 says this, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. James seems to be building on his half-brother Jesus' teaching, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you say flows from what's in your heart. What you do flows from what's going on inside. And you want to know why you fight? You want to know what causes quarrels between you and your wife? What causes quarrels between you and your kids? What causes quarrels between you and your coworkers, you and your friends? James 4, 1 says this. What causes quarrels and fights among you? I, I quote this so many times to my kids. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your own passions. This is so important. If you're not familiar with James 4, so important to understand how do we function and work. We're not told the motivation of the job, but I want to take this time here to explain a little bit on how do we work as humans. The scriptures talk about human beings as being material and immaterial. Genesis 1, God takes dirt, dust, he forms a man and he breathes breath into him and becomes Adam. So we see material and immaterial. And whether it's the language of heart, our soul, our spirit, our mind, our will, it's all describing this immaterial reality. The reality that I think in the, is most common in the Old Testament is referred to as the heart. The heart is the center of cognitive, of our thinking, our believing, our reasoning, our remembering, our interpreting. The heart is the center of our affections, our desires, our values, our feelings, our emotions. The heart is the center of our volitional choices, our will, our deciding, our intending, our acting, our committing. That's all in the heart. Jesus and the rest of the biblical authors describe us acting, choosing, speaking out of the heart. Well, culturally, and we try to make sense of how do we work apart from the Bible, we don't have a very nuanced perspective of how we work. Culturally, doctors prescribe medicine and psychiatrists and psychotherapists prescribe medication, and we can seek to blame everything on the brain, on our body, chemical imbalances. I've had a lot of friends, or a lot of conversations with a, my friend named Christian, who's a licensed psychotherapist, a state licensed mental health therapist, and we've talked about for how a long time it seems like there's been this divorce of mental health and the church. For a long time, it seemed like the mentality of, of some in the church was, why do we need counseling? <laughs> Just have faith. Just have more faith. Amen. Let me pray for you. Yeah. Counseling is bad. And what I've seen in younger generations, my generation, is if I want help, I don't go to the church. I go to a licensed mental health therapist. They will really help me. I'm going to go to someone who can give me some medication. So there's this, this divide I see of many in the church, they feel like 
we have our real problems, anxiety, depression, mental health problems, we're just referred out. The Bible has nothing to say about that. You need to go to someone who can really help you. What we're talking about in, in younger generations, mental health, it seems like it's talked about more. People talk about going to therapy, going to counseling. But there's this kind of underlying assumption in our culture based on what we're told that a lot of our problems are hereditary. We just blame our problems on the brain. This is how I was made. This is my chemical imbalance. And it leads with this, like there's no real hope or relief. The Bible can't speak to that. And when we answer the question of why, we attribute it to simply our physical bodies, not a matter of the heart or the soul or the inner self dynamic. And the Bible has so much to say about this. I'm grieved that it's not talked about more. So I want to pursue biblical counseling. There's a book I found that's helpful in describing kind of the psychiatric diagnosis and medications. It's written by this Christian doctor named Michael Emlett. It's called Descriptions and Prescriptions. I'd, I'd recommend uh, reading it, picking it up. And it's balanced. It's not against medication. It's not shaming people who are on antidepressants, but it's more nuanced than the cultural assumptions. He says this, in our medicalized and <laughs> pharmacologically driven culture, the average person assumes that every, each diagnostic entity is primarily caused by a clear and specific brain dysfunction. So anxiety, depression, the label that's given to a set of assumptions, but there's very little evidence to support that assumption. The assumption of an ultimate biological cause for most psychiatric problems is enshrined in our culture, even if it is not viewed as a slam dunk in academic and research-oriented psychiatry which has a much more nuanced view involving nature and nurture. Notice the difference between saying, I struggle with anxiety in social situations versus I have social anxiety disorder. The later suggests an underlying biological cause, some kind of brain disease, that is the ultimate origin of this struggle. Yet, there is, as I noted before, there's no scientifically, no scientific test like a blood test or a brain scan showing reliable and reproducible patterns that is used to make psych psychiatric diagnosis. So this to summarize. The most significant limitation of our psychiatric diagnosis is that they describe human thought, human emotion, or human behavior, but they do not explain why the person has these experiences. This creates confusion and misunderstanding among the public, which perceives the system to be more definitive than it is. You guys tracking with me? This is where I think in our society we can, the biblical vision of how we work and the heart and the influence can be so compelling and necessary in our society. We can have hope for change, amen? And true healing. We don't ignore science and research, those who have studied the brain, but God's word presents hope and help. God's word present solution to answers to the why and give us hope to change of new experiences of joy and peace and love. And so there's a lot more I could say about this. But I want to present the reality that although we don't know what Joab's motivations are, the Bible does present a view that helps us understand why we do what we do. And the teaching of Jesus informs us that what we do flows out of our heart. So as we grow in wisdom, we don't want to be unaware of our motivations, our desires. We want to be bringing our hearts to God, asking him to change us from the inside out. So if you have any questions, I'd love to talk with you more um, or, or share more of what I'm learning in school, but let's continue on. 
Joab and Abishai, they continue on, they chase after Sheba. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. You get this picture of this guy standing, he's just been killed, he's wallowing in, in blood and is in the road. This is the commander of the Lord's army. And there's this young man standing next to him. He's like, whoever is for David and Joab, follow Joab. What's going to happen? What happens when there's an accident on the highway? Just a little fender bender. Everyone slows down and right, you want to look. The same thing is happening. This is the commander of their army. He's lying dead in the road. They're going to stop and look. It's confusing. <laughs> Why is our commander dead like this? So what do they do? Throw him into the field, cover him with a blanket. Yeah, let's get rid of this distraction. And they follow on. And Sheba goes all the way, all through the tribes of Israel to Abel. Now, this is a town that's about four miles west of the major city of Dan, kind of in one of the most northern tribal allotments of Israel. It's all the way to the north. And maybe along the way, he's trying to drum up support. He's, he's going through the cities. He's asking, he's trying to rally support to aid in this rebellion. But as he comes to Abel, all the men of Judah who are with Joab start to besiege the city. And they form a siege ramp. There's actually still a ramp that you can see or a mound that you can see today with an Assyrian king named Sennacherib when he attacked the city of Lachish in the 8th century BC. They'd form this giant mound up to the city wall so they could take it down, and they'd form battering rams, and they'd try to break down the city or go over the walls, and this is what they were doing. And as he comes to Abel, all the men, who they start to besiege the city, and it's, it's as if as they were battering the wall to throw it down, there's this wise woman call, from Abel calls out in verse 16, and she says, listen. Listen, tell Joab, come here. Let me speak to you. And he came near and he said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. And she said, listen to the words of your servant. He answered, I'm listening. She said, they used to say in former times, let them ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. Because apparently this, Abel had this reputation of being a place where mat, disputes were settled in wisdom. It's a reputation for being a place of wisdom. At former times, they'd say, ask counsel at Abel. She says in verse 19, am I one of, and I am one of those who is peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. This, this phrase, mother in Israel, is a phrase of honor. This is a respectful city. The city deserves to be treated with honor and respect, not destroyed like an enemy. This is what she's saying. And Job answered, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. This is not true, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, Son of Bichri has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. She's not messing around. She's going to get stuff taken care of. The woman went to all the people in her wisdom. And they cut off the head of Sheba. They threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. The second rebellion squashed. And it ended the similar way that it ended with Absalom. Absalom is dead, blows the trumpet, everyone goes home. Sheba is dead. Joab returns to Jerusalem to the king. And then we, as we mentioned before, we see that list of officials there at the end. And that kind of ends the body of the narrative before the kind of epilogue of the last four chapters. So if our goal at the end of a story like this, is to draw out principles and applications and implications from the text, 
This is a difficult one. What's the call? Don't be a Sheba. Be more like the faithful and peaceable woman. And then the call would be, be like that. But if we allow this story to point us to Christ, see we, we see kind of two ways in which this story points us that, that way. First, on the one hand, David's kingdom is not the promised kingdom. It hasn't been realized. It's not a kingdom of justice and equity. Joab just seemingly gets to do what he wants. He's murdering, he's murdering his own cousin to be commander. There's not stability, there's not peace, there's division, there's dissension, there's unrest. We see David had his flaws. He's unable to restore the kingdom. He's unable to have his wishes fulfilled. Joab is seemingly a loose cannon. He does what he wants without consequence. David is also not the kind of king that can wipe away the tears from his people. That sad story of coming back and the 10 concubines are just shut up. They're living until death in widowhood. I think there is one in the story who, who foreshadows and points us to Jesus, the peaceable and faithful one in Israel, the woman of wisdom, who speaks on behalf of her city, saving it from coming destruction, sending the head of the rebel over the wall. In this, we see something, I think, of the beauty of Jesus. Jesus came to deal with the rebellion of humanity against their good and kind king, but he didn't come cutting off the heads of all of the rebels. We still have our heads. He went after something greater, the hearts of his people. Jesus knew that our rebellion originates and flows from our hearts. And he not only needed to pay the price to administer justice, to bring proper payment and punishment for the rebellion, he needed to do something with the heart of humanity, to change the hearts of his people from rebels to sons and daughters, from slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness, from those who are quick to retaliate and hurt to those who are quick to forgive and want to offer healing in Jesus. Jesus deals with the rebellion of his people, not by building a siege ramp up to the city to break down the walls and invade, but he rides into the city in peace, surrendering his life in love, willingly taking the place of a criminal. The faithful and peaceful one in Israel was sent outside of the city to be crushed on a Roman cross to pay the debt of our sin. The faithful and peaceable one in Israel was killed that the worthless rebel, the good for nothing, evil, would be forgiven. It's outrageous. Jesus' death on the cross, it not only made payment for sin, but it secured the new covenant, a new way of God dealing with agreement between God and man where God promised that his very spirit would indwell the hearts of his people, would cause them to want to follow after him and obey his laws and commandments, would have his heart that wants to follow him and love him and love his people. God's very spirit would change the hearts of rebels to be a people that share the heart of the king, faithful and peaceful. The kingdom of Jesus is not 
the kind of kingdom like David's that could be shaken. That's divided. The kingdom of God is not unstable. There's no rebellion that will stand against the king of Jesus. It's united. The kingdom of God is united. It will not be shaken. It's secured. It's indwelled by his very spirit. The kingdom of Jesus is not advanced also by brutal force or manipulation or deception or disgraceful and underhanded ways. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace and joy and righteousness. The apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. So then he writes, so then let us pursue peace. What makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You see a story of violence, of deception, of manipulation in this kingdom and we say, Jesus, thank you that your kingdom renounces these underhanded ways. May all those in the kingdom renounce this kind of brutal force, manipulation. Is it well with you, brother? I'm going to stab you and let you sit on the road while your blood, you're wallowing in your own pain. We see the beauty of Jesus in 2 Samuel 20, how the one peaceful and righteous one in a shocking reversal, gave up his own life for those who are in rebellion to his reign and rule. That from his peace and righteousness, they are changed, their hearts are changed by the spirit. That they don't remain rebels forever. We read a story like 2 Samuel 20 and we say, God, thank you that you did not regard me as a rebel ultimately. That my head being cut off and justice being administered in death was not the final say in my life. You sent your son Jesus to take my place in punishment that I would be regarded as faithful and righteousness by faith. It's given to me. It's not because of what I did or earned. Thank you, God, that you did not regard us as the Sheba's in the story, amen? amen? It's not because we, we, can, we can muster it up in ourselves. We were born this way. Yeah, we're peaceful and righteous. No, no, no. God accredits that to us. He treats us that way because of Jesus, amen? amen. We thank, thank you, Father, for doing this in our life. May we rejoice that we have not been treated like we deserve to be treated that we have been preserved from the consequences of our sin and our rebellion, our way in our hearts of saying, we have no share in Jesus and his inheritance. May I, may someone else, may, there, there has to be a better king than Jesus and we're gonna begin rebellion and leave him. May we respond with soft answers to harshness. May we respond with peace in the midst of a world of uncertainty and anxiety. May we respond with righteousness in the midst of a world of unwavering devotion to self. Because we read a story like 2 Samuel 20 and we see the grace of God and the glory of Jesus through this story. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, thank you that you have delivered us from the dominion of darkness into the glorious inheritance, the glorious kingdom of light. Lord, we believe that this has happened by faith. We can forget, Father, I, I can forget so quickly. And I, I can live as, as, as in the former ways of harshness, of repaying evil for evil, of setting my desires upon myself and living and operating out of this reality. Lord, thank you that by your grace, you continually call me back to yourself. And this is what you do in our life. Lord, we are prone to wander. Even indwelled by the Spirit, Father, I can do some, I can do some wickedness. But it's your Spirit that convicts and calls us back to yourself. Lord, it's your Spirit that teaches us of more of our sinfulness to, to grow our appreciation and understanding of your grace. Thank you that while we were sinning, we were rebelling against you, you pursued us, not in a pursuit to behead us, but to give us a new heart. To help us experience the realities of your love and your mercy and your kindness. Or I see this reality in my own life, I see it in the reality of my kids. When we sin, when we mess up, we, we run, we hide. We don't really believe and see and experience and understand just how different and gracious and kind you are to us. Lord, you come after us. Help our church to be a place where everyone feels this kind of grace and love where we can be a church where we are encouraging one another, we're building one another up in love, we're helping each other realize and operate out of who you have already made us. We're becoming who we are. Our thanks that your kingdom is not, it's not wavering. It doesn't rely upon the fickleness of your people, of how... Uh, Someone can get up and sway and influence and lead people to certain plans and schemes. Your, your kingdom is established. You will not be shaken. We live in this time of Jesus is coming and he's not come back yet. This, this already but not yet. And we, we trust, we hope as we look to the future that all of the conflict and division and strife, all the sin that is operative, the fighting and the quarreling, one day that'll be no more. No more rebellion. We pray that you would come, Jesus. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you use us, Father, by your grace? Would you be so kind to us to use us as instruments in your hands to help represent the king well? Would our allegiance be to the King, Jesus? 
Would we not be swayed to and fro by the, the circumstances or the political parties or the government or the experiences of our life? May we set our hope and our assurance on you. As we sang, you are steadfast. Father, as we experience sickness and isolation, with this cultivate a longing for a glorified body, a life free from pain and sickness and suffering and death, as we walk alongside those in our life that are on the brink of death, would these realities give us a hope that there is something better Father, thanks for the work that you've done in our church. You've humbled us. You're teaching us about your grace. You're teaching us about the difference of the kingdom of Jesus versus the kingdom of the world, where those in authority don't rule over and domineer, but they serve and love. Where those who are great in the world are those who are first and are successful and famous, and those in the kingdom are those who are the least, the humble, those who are like children in dependence. Lord, I feel, I feel so much joy now as I think about what you've done in our church, and I praise you, Father. Thank you that your rule and reign is demonstrated in your church. Lord, help us to demonstrate that well to those who come in and visit, to those in our life who are under the rule and reign of a different king. Would we show them the joy of following Jesus together? Lord, and as we learn more about you through your word, as we see the way in which the, the Bible is a story that points to the glory of Jesus, would it cause us to be freed and joyful and peaceful? Would you help us to grow in righteousness, to grow in wisdom? Would we glory in you and celebrate you now as we sing? In Jesus' name, amen.